Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen. This is Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition. This is day 20 of the campaign. It is the halfway point of the campaign, and the day's been dominated by more promises to tackle affordability, questions about gun control, questions about costing and deficits and more. Coming up, candidates debate. Journalists will be here to discuss the campaign at the midway mark, and we'll follow the election on the ground in the hotly contested riding of St. Catharines, one of our ridings to watch. But first, our campaign primer for day 20. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau campaigned in Toronto today, where he met with healthcare professionals to discuss gun violence and heard the call to action, including from this medical student who spoke of the gun violence he witnessed firsthand in his own community. How many kids do we have to lose to the trauma of the gun violence till we decide that enough is enough? I'm here to say as a representative of the Black Medical Students Association, we are here to give a voice to those who have been forgotten by our society. I am not becoming a doctor to continue to see this kind of violence, and I hope you can see the urgency in this matter. One doctor criticized Trudeau for refusing to implement a national ban on handguns. There are provinces with leadership out there that are not going to accept this. Um, and even if provinces do accept it, Toronto may do it and Mississauga may not do it. You just cross the 427 and you can purchase handguns. I think that that's the wrong approach. The Liberal campaign platform unveiled this weekend restates the commitment to ban military-style assault rifles, but leaves the decision on whether to ban handguns to provinces and municipalities. The 85-page campaign platform, released on Sunday, promises $57 billion in new spending for seniors and students and families, and deficits over the next four years totaling $94 billion with no timetable for returning to balance. Justin Trudeau says it's all about dealing with the concerns of Canadians. We are going to continue to talk about the things that matter to Canadians. We've heard from Canadians not just over the past number of weeks, but over the past number of years. That even though our economy is growing at record levels, even though uh, we have over a million new jobs that Canadians created, including most of them full-time, and we've lifted 900,000 people out of poverty, including 300,000 kids, we hear very clearly from Canadians that there is more to do. Campaigning in Whitby, Ontario, the Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, announced a Conservative government would expand the criteria for receiving the disability tax credit by reducing the number of hours a week needed on life-sustaining therapy from 14 hours to 10. The party says that will allow another 35,000 Canadians to qualify for the credit. We need to do more to support Canadians with disabilities in ways that leave more money in their pockets to help them manage their health needs. This act is just one of the ways we will do that. Andrew Scheer also slammed the Liberal platform announcement this weekend while being pressed to say when he will reveal his platform and his fiscal plan. As I said, we will be unveiling our, our, our full platform well in advance for Canadians to, to make decisions. I will note that even yesterday, even in releasing their platform, the Liberals have failed to cost over half of their promises. So, uh, you know, Canadians can see that they are hiding the fact that they're going to raise taxes after the next election. You the NDP leader campaigned for yet another day in British Columbia. 
Jagmeet Singh promised an NDP government would spend billions on childcare. We want to put forward $10 billion over the next four years to build half a million new affordable childcare spots, licensed childcare spots across this country. Because one in four kids under six have childcare, but that means three out of four kids do not. Uh, this is really difficult for so many families and so many kids. So we want to change that. We want to make real investments. Singh is also promising the NDP would pass a law to guarantee that every family can have access to affordable childcare. The NDP's goal is to make sure childcare is available to all families across Canada for no more than $10 a day by 2030. And the NDP leader too attacked the Liberal platform as just another list of promises that won't be delivered, just as in the case with universal childcare. The Liberal government's been promising this for 26 years. There's kids now that were born, kids that were born when this promise was first made, that are now grown up and need childcare for their kids. That's how long this promise has been going on. And that's the kind of day it's been. Day 20 of the campaign. Voting day is just three weeks away. So big spending and more deficits promised in the Liberal platform. Let's bring in three candidates to debate the party approaches to affordability issues and what we know about their plans. Mona Fortier is co-chair of the Liberal Platform Committee and the candidate for re-election in Ottawa-Vanier. Michael Barrett is the Conservative candidate for re-election in the Ontario riding of Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands, Rideau Lakes. And Angela McEwen is the NDP candidate in the riding of Ottawa-West Nepean. Uh, Michael Barrett, if I can, let me start with you on this. Conservatives started this election campaign saying, look, the number one issue would be affordability and helping people get ahead. The Liberal platform is spending lots of money on a lot of programs in a lot of sectors of society. The Conservatives are promising tax cuts of their own and tax credits. The NDP and the Greens are promising big spending on social programs. So how should the voter decide who has the best offer on affordability? Well, um, Peter, we've been knocking on uh, hundreds of thousands of doors uh, across uh, Ontario. And uh, here in my riding, we've knocked on um, thousands of doors. And the message is very clear. And that is that people are, are having a hard time at the end of the month. Um, doing more than just getting by. And so we've proposed um, measures that do make life more affordable. Uh, our universal tax cut, um, removing the, uh, scrapping the carbon tax, removing GST from home heating. And um, we have committed uh, in step with our uh, social, our health and social programs guarantee that while we are going to increase um, transfers to the provinces of 3%, uh, every year, um, we're, we're going to balance the budget in five years. So we are, um, we're making life more affordable for Canadians, and um, we are going to balance the budget, but we're not going to do it at a cost of any social programs. What we're seeing from Justin Trudeau's team is um, that they had promised that the budget was going to be balanced this year or that it was going to balance itself, and uh, they're $17 billion off from that in 2019, and they're promising now uh, a $27 billion deficit uh, in 2020. Okay. So let, let, um, me, these, let me move. Truck. Let me move to Mona Forte. So uh, th there is that point. The, there's no more talk of, of balanced budgets anymore in the Liberal platform. It's, there's a lot of deficit spending, and um, are balanced budgets important anymore? Well, we're investing in Canadians. We want to invest in growth and continue to make sure that Canada is uh, continuing to support middle class uh, families, and that growth is the most important thing. We have. You'll see in the platform that was announced yesterday, yeah, measures uh, to help Canadians have uh, 
uh, great opportunities to help them with their affordability. We call, we're going right, to cut to 25. Right, but do balance budgets matter well, anymore? Well, we have uh, guiding principles to make sure that we're on a downward track uh, with the net GDP uh, ratio uh, that is going to make sure that we uh, have a responsible plan. We also want to keep our AAA credit. And investing in Canadians is the right way. We saw it in the last four years by creating Canadians created one over one million jobs and we've lifted 900,000 uh, Canadians out of poverty so okay. we have to continue on that track and the measures that we have will help strengthen our middle class and I will Angela McEwen let me, let me let me move to you uh, I mean I'm sure there's a lot of ideas in this liberal platform that the Democrats probably think are good ideas but what's wrong with the platform well, it comes down to a two-part question. Do you want to rebuild the social services we rely on in Canada, and do you trust the Liberals to do it? Because uh, they've been promising some of these things in this platform since uh, before I graduated high school. In the past 30 years, they've had promises on childcare, they've promised pharmacare, they've promised um, to, to build houses, and they're actually spending less on housing. They've promised to do more on international development. They're spending less. So it, it really comes down to these are pretty words. These are great ideas. But do you trust the Liberals to deliver? Because they haven't for the past four years. Do deficits matter? I think this is where we agree with the Liberals, that if your debt-to-GDP ratio is falling, then what that means is that your return on your investment that you're making in Canada is paying off. You're getting, you're getting that economic growth from the investments that you're making. And so um, that's a really good signal that you're doing a good job in terms of what you're spending on. Okay, Mr. Barrett, uh, your two colleagues here see deficits one way. Uh, you and your party see it a different way in terms of trying to balance the books. The, the big question becomes, uh, if you get into office, what has to go to balance the books? What do you cut? Well, you know, obviously deficits, um, uh, they matter. And balancing the budget... Uh, matters. And you can't uh, just uh, govern on the credit card and not expect that uh, on Canadians' credit cards and not expect that anyone has to pay the bill. Um, we've, we've already talked about um, some of the things that we're going to cut, including one and a half billion dollars annually in corporate welfare going to, going to companies that had, uh, um, were paying you know, uh, shareholder dividends and executive bonuses and not guaranteeing any uh, Canadian jobs in the process. But if you take you know, over if you take over government, if you have a deficit when you take over fifteen or twenty billion dollars, the one point five billion is not going to go a long way towards reining that in. Uh, no, and, and we're going to uh, announce um, our fully costed platform in, including um, other areas where eleventh I think your leader said today, right? So Right, okay. right. And, and and what we saw with the with the Liberal uh, platform announced yesterday, it's not costed. A lot of these are pie in the sky promises and many of them we don't know where they're gonna get the money to do it. And, uh, and they don't even know where they're going to get the money to do it. And so it's, it's really important that um, Canadians have all of the information and that they're able to choose uh, a government um, that has a plan and has a plan to uh, return to balance in a responsible way while making life more affordable and supporting uh, important social Okay, programs. so let me, let, me, let me pick up with... Not all of the promises are... Have, no, uh, not all the, the promises are costed. And, the, and the, well, the parliamentary budget officer says some of your revenue expectations on a luxury tax and on some different corporate taxes are highly uncertain. They're projections. They're highly uncertain. And, and, if, and, and if you look at this, and let me put it this way, if, you're, if your fiscal anchor is the debt to GDP ratio, there are a lot of things that could throw off that fiscal anchor. If your projections are wrong on revenues, if we hit a, 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 a global downturn, which a lot of people are concerned about, that we get swept up, 
uh, like how how concerned are you that we are that fiscal anchor that fiscal the, anchor gets cut cut loose if any of these projections are well, wrong? Well, we have a solid plan that has four guided principles and that. Uh, the, the declining net to GDP ratio. We also want to continue to have a AAA credit because we know that we want confidence in this economy. And we're building by investing in Canadians and they can help grow the economy. And that's what we're doing. Many measures are in there to do that. Also, we're looking at a very important issue, which is environment. I mean, we know that putting a price on pollution is the right thing to do and to continue on that track is really important. I'm worried that if Conservatives are uh, elected, they will cut on that, they will cut on the price on pollution, they'll want pollution to be free, and that is not a good uh, plan for I mean, I mean, this this platform actually isn't that much different from what the, the Conservatives are offering in terms of there's a lot of targeted tax credits that don't help the people who are having the hardest time. Um, there's not enough investment in things like affordable housing or child care that make the biggest difference to affordability for people. The farmer care plan, how can we believe that it's universal if it's not even costed in the program? There's no money allocated towards it. Um, so these are big ticket items that aren't showing up in the platform that really matter. When I'm knocking on doors and talking to people and I say, they say, how are you going to help me afford to live? And I say, well, we're going to bring in a universal farmer care program and we're going to um, have a rent subsidy and bring in affordable housing. They're like, yeah, that's that would make a difference so, in my life. Mr. Barrett, is, is, is the conservative argument looking at this platform that uh, maybe it does make, it has something for everyone perhaps, and maybe it does make a lot of lives more affordable, but you're saying it's irresponsible? Does it do more on the affordability side than conservatives would do, but at a risk in terms of deficits? You know, we've put forward a, um, a you know, a really uh, reasonable and uh, targeted set of measures um, that, that help uh, the most Canadians, and um, and certainly the plan is very risky when they don't know how they are going to pay for it. And our plan that we're putting forward, um, we know where the revenue is coming from, and uh, and we're going to outline uh, areas uh, where we're going to make cuts. And uh, the the Liberals want to point to um, they want to point to you know uh, the social programs, and and that's why we've been very clear that we're going to. Um, have an increase of 3% annually through our health and uh, social programs guarantee. But and the costs uh, in health are rising faster than 3%. 3% isn't even going to keep up with population growth plus inflation. So a 3% transfer to the provinces for health is actually in real terms a cut. They need more money than that. And their systems are already fraying. In Ontario especially, we have hallway medicine. We have people that should be in long-term care homes that are sitting in hospitals uh, for years at a time, actually. So that's not okay. Okay, we're just... We see, in Ontario, we see the result of 14 years of a, of a Liberal government that mismanaged uh, they mismanaged the healthcare system. They mismanaged our finances, and the same people that advise suffering in Ontario okay. all those cuts. Let me so let I me give a final word to Bonaforte here. Well, uh, I am and I I am very happy with the product that uh, we have, that the platform we're presenting. We talked to Canadians uh, for the past year and a half, and we have measures to help with affordability and also to grow the economy. Right. So I'm hoping that and, we will and we'll be we'll able wait to, to see uh, the fully costed platforms from the Democrats and from Conservatives before the end of the. Uh, the election cycle in the next couple of weeks, we expect. So thank you all for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, let's get an independent assessment of the Liberal campaign platform from my next guest. Kevin Page was Canada's first parliamentary budget officer. He's now the president of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Mr. Page, good to see you again. To see Thanks you. for being here. So let's get your, let me start with your overall assessment of the, of, the, of the costing and the credibility of the Liberal Party's election platform. And to be clear here, we're not asking you to reflect on the choices they're making yeah. about spending, just whether the numbers add up and whether the, the assumptions are right. So where, where do you land on that? We, the numbers add up, and uh, I think the assumptions are the assumptions of the priority budget officer for you know the underlying baseline, and they've made good use of PBO costing. So, like, do, is it a credible fiscal plan? They're adding about thirty billion dollars to the stock of debt over the next five years. You know, so they're increasing the deficit. Um, you know, they're saying that their fiscal rule is going to continue to be a declining debt to GDP ratio, and if they can achieve that over the next five years. Uh, that would put them in relatively good standing internationally and with uh, credit rating agencies. Okay, so let's walk through how you, you assess these platforms based on three measures and let's quickly go through them. Uh, what's the assessment of the use of realistic and credible economic projection? I guess that's the question, is, is, is the foundation for the platform good? Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good foundation. They definitely get they get a pass on on those assumptions. They use uh, PBO's baseline. There's, again, where we don't give them a high grade is there's not a lot of talk about economic and fiscal challenges that go beyond. Uh, we need to address uh, affordability issues for the middle class. We need to strengthen the middle class. So we're not here. We don't hear a lot about. Canada's productivity challenges or competitiveness right. challenges. So we, like, we didn't give them a good grade on on that side. On the fiscal side, there's there's you know a sense that um, like basically that you know that there's a lot of fiscal room to maneuver and, and you know they're choosing to use it. I think again, I think there's from an economist perspective, some will debate. Well, the economy is doing fine. You know, the economy is growing. We're one, up one and a half percent. The unemployment rate's below six percent. Do we really need to see deficits going up over the next you know couple of years? So they don't really talk in the, in those sorts of terms. So we didn't, we, you know, we gave them a pass, but not a good score on those assumptions. Right. I mean, the, the, the assumption, they talk about their fiscal anchor, and, and it's this debt to GDP ratio. And as long as they continue to drive that down, uh, they seem to be pretty much saying we'll spend whatever we want or need to spend to, you know, uh, make Canadians happy. Uh, any concerns about that? I mean, and I guess I'm wondering in this climate, are, are we ever going to talk about the need for balanced budgets again. The other parties, you know, the Greens and Conservatives talking about balancing in five years and I don't know how easy that's going to be with, with those numbers staring at them, but uh, have we pretty much been conditioned now to deficits are okay? I think we are conditioned that de modest deficits are okay and for the most part the deficits over the medium term are modest. They're less than one percentage point of GDP. So um, if you think about in the United States, those deficits in the four and five percent and a one percent deficit to GDP is a lot lower than most OECD countries. And you know, when and when we do the longer term analysis, are we fiscally sustainable with this fiscal track? Yeah, you know, I think the you know the PBO, you know, IMF, finance department would say yes. It's still we're still fiscally sustainable. I mean, I think to your point though, I think there should be a debate. Like you know how big should these deficits be? There is a discussion in different parts of the world about how we use monetary policy and fiscal policy. There seems mm -hmm. to be, it's okay for the governor of the Bank of Canada to cut, you know, interest rates even lower. And, you know, there's a limit to how successful monetary policy could be to stimulate the economy. So could you make the case, can economists debate saying, you know, why not run a, a modest deficit, even increase the deficit? So just get this better balance between monetary and fiscal policy. And I, I think that part is a fair debate. Okay. Uh, you and I have talked in the past about uh, concerns 
when you were the parliamentary budget officer about structural deficits. And you know, I guess when you when you see continuing and so everybody understands, right? The the uh, continuing chronic deficits uh, where you can't, you know, aren't, there aren't enough ways to bring in enough revenue to to uh, meet your expenses. Do you look at these numbers and have any concern about that, that this could lead us to a structural deficit? Some of these program announcements are, are long-term, and if they stay, how are we going to meet them? We do have a modest uh, or small structural deficit. I think the Department of Finance admits that when they release their fiscal reference tables um, annually. And so it is structural, so the government's going to actually have to take actions, you know, to cut spending further or to increase revenues even more than they've increased them. But again, it's small, so we think that the structural deficit is less than one percentage point of GDP. If you think about where it was in the 1980s when Canada ran into a, a debt-to-GDP problem, it was probably, again, four or five percentage points of GDP. So again, it, as long as we keep it small, and with the, in this context of low interest rates, so, you know, the carrying cost of interest, it continues to go down, even though we're adding to the stock of debt, because these interest rates are just ridiculously low. Mm. Uh, the current parliamentary budget officer does raise some concerns about some of the, uh, the assumptions uh, the Liberals have made here in terms of revenues from some of these taxes they brought, including this 10% uh, tax on luxury goods. Um, you know, the, the concern being, well, we're, we're not sure you're going to get that much money from these taxes and, and whether there'll be that kind of take up and so on. Do you share some of those concerns? Yeah, I think it's a good practice that the Pronti Budget Office highlights where they, they feel that there's just a lot of uncertainty. So, you know, interesting, you know, introducing new taxes uh, definitely raises that issue. On some of the issues, maybe the luxury tax, I think, you know, the, you know, the, um, the, the reduction to or the limit on the amount of interest that could be deducted by corporations. Um, I think there is like higher levels of uncertainty. Some of the other measures on revenue raising measures with respect to housing, maybe a little bit less so because we have provinces that have similar measures. Um, but yeah, I think like we need to recognize that there is uncertainty as well. The government is saying, or the you know the Liberal Party rather is saying that mm -hmm. they could find savings, you know, two two and a half billion dollars a year just through through reviews. This is a platform, not a budget. So right. we think it's okay to signal that. And then as we move forward to the budget, we're going to need to refine these numbers. So when you hear a language in a platform that says, yeah, we can find savings, uh, we know where to find savings, uh, what do you think? I mean, should, I should, should they show us where? Should they be talking in a platform? Is that necessary? Yeah, I think to give people an idea, okay, here's what yeah. we're thinking of getting rid of to pay for these other things. I think we have more confidence when they, yeah, there's, there's more discussion about like what's, what, what is the base for defining these savings, what's the governance process. Uh, I think here they commit to re, you know, releasing evaluations on their, their findings so that we'll know a little bit why they're, they're choosing these sorts of cuts. They make the argument that they found roughly $3 billion a year in tax expenditures through the last review exercise. So they can, you know, they think there's more to be there. We think it's a good thing that they're reviewing and, you know, they continue to review and try to target savings. But yeah, is there a risk around those numbers because they're unspecified? Absolutely. All right, Kevin Page, always good to talk to you. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Well, let's bring in our panel of parliamentary press gallery colleagues who are following the twists and turns of the campaign. Susan Delacorte is a columnist and parliamentary bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Joel Denis Bellavance is the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. And John Iveson is columnist for the National Post and parliamentary bureau chief for Post Media. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Let's talk about uh, the Liberal platform launched on the weekend. In the context, if I can, of, of the whole affordability, affordability issue. The, the, the party said this was going to be the number one issue and now it seems to me they're tripping over each other to try and put more than everybody else in the window. And, and I guess uh, I'm wondering who you think is winning the affordability 
challenge here to try and win voters. Huh, yeah, who's bought? Uh, who's bought the Canadian public uh, best? I, I think right now, um, I don't think I'd, I'd declare a winner yet. I think it's it's definitely an auction. Uh, they are uh, a bidding war uh, to see who can get them. Um, the the thing about the platform I read through yesterday was how much it struck me as almost like a budget, you know, or a throne speech, which they never got around to right. delivering. It was very bureaucratic. Um, not at all like, like a campaign document to me. It read more like um, what you put in a, a wish list for a throne speech, if you, if you just figure you're still government. Right, what do you think, Jolene? Well, if you look at the polls, uh, there, yeah, I agree with Susan, you can't declare a winner and who is winning the affordable debate. The Tories had decided back in January that this wanted, they wanted to be the, the theme of, the, of their election campaign, affordability. And the, the Justin Trudeau, the Liberal leader, in June said he wanted the election to be a referendum on climate change and who's best uh, suited to right. fight this. And so you can see, though, that the Liberals have moved a bit towards the affordability theme because they know that might be more winner for them than fighting only uh, an election on climate change. So they want to be, do both, but they're clearly moving more towards the affordability team. That has been, I think, the one that the Tories wanted to impose in this election. When, you, when your slogan, John, is it's time for you to get ahead, which you know the, the, the conservative slogan, uh, that focuses people to look at what's on offer. And when you see what's being rolled out by the different parties, it's it, like, how, if you're a voter, what's the answer to that question? Who helps you get ahead? Well, it, I mean, it is an, an auction on Advanced auction on stolen goods, as somebody once said about. <laughs> about uh, uh, and I do, I do agree with JD that, that that the Conservatives were out early saying this was going to be their focus, and the Liberals have tailored their campaign to it. Um, the problem for the Conservatives is that they've said that they're going to balance the books as well, which obviously limits the amount of money they can spend, unless they're going to cut services to the bone, which then opens the door to. Uh, Comparisons with Doug Ford. Oh, are they in a Ontario. bit of a box here with this narrative? They are in now? a bit of a box, and, they, and so their platform will be poured over very closely. This thing, it was funny, I was, I was just reading it and won't get fooled again by the who came on my, my playlist. <laughs> and uh, it reminded me of the 2015 platform, which, if you look back at it, does not hold up so well. I mean, the, the uh, you know, modest deficits over four years and back into balance by now has obviously not happened. They always had this thing where they could say, well, we've got this fiscal anchor of the debt-to-GDP ratio, right. the amount of debt compared to the, to the size of the economy, and it was always going to be ticking downwards. Now, they are stretching that to, yeah. to breaking point in this thing. Um, they've, I think they've, some of the numbers look to be a little bit uh, innovative, yeah, to say in, the least. In, in fact, we, we heard from the Parliamentary Budget Officer, we heard from Kevin Page in our program saying that, that you know, these... these uh, some of these revenue measures they've put in, which largely consist of taxes, uh, luxury taxes, taxes on corporations, but, are but also some are, spending are, are, cuts, which, yeah, which have a higher, high uncertainty risk right. around them. So there's, no kidding. There, there's, it would seem there's there's a good chance they won't meet those. But, but those they had targets. to have those numbers there because otherwise that debt to GDP number does not tick down, and it only ticks down by 0.5 of a percent over four years, which means that if there's any shock to the economy, any slowdown in growth or a recession then they're in trouble and their fiscal anchor has just been blown away. Yeah, that, I would say that this platform is a bit of a gamble because uh, if you look at, I like to talk about the blue liberals, that is part of the coalition of the Liberal Party. You've got 
those, those who yeah, favor more activist government and those who are on the right side of the spectrum, political spectrum. The rural liberals like John Manley, even Paul Martin, um, I don't think they would be comfortable with that kind of platform because there's no uh, deficit, end of deficit insight, and that may cause the, li the liberal to lose some support. It's the first liberal platform that does not seem to me to talk about growing the economy. Yeah, in fact, there's not been a whole lot of that discussion in the whole by anybody in the whole campaign. Another thing that's really striking about the platform is how much of their plan or their vision, such as it is, uh, rests on the help from other people. Can't have a pharmacare program until there's provinces uh, the mm. provinces. There's so many things that are sort of to be announced or to be negotiated too, which is interesting because I watched Trudeau yesterday talking about you're going to have a tough negotiator across from Doug Ford, but Doug Ford can negotiate tough back, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it it struck me. I found myself missing Stephen Harper's five big things, you know, that that uh, we used to have platforms that were about something, but there were no, there's no five big things in no this big platform. Has there been a big idea in the campaign? No. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know the conservatives haven't done it either. There isn't. Uh, there's there's sort of little bits and pieces of boutique, things here and back there. Back to the boutique tax yeah, cut thing and credits but, and. But yeah. uh, and you'll re recall the one promise of the five big things that Harper promised: healthcare, uh, lower the waiting list for healthcare. Right. He couldn't accomplish because it needed help. From Very friends. quickly, Jay, you know, yeah, and the, the, Mr. Trudeau announced the platform yesterday in uh, Mississauga, and he mentioned the name Doug Ford many times. He seems to be running like against Doug Ford. Well, Doug Ford is running Ontario, but he's not running the rest of Canada. He's not running Quebec, so he doesn't speak to voters in Quebec when he talks about Doug Ford. No, but to John's point, it, you know, it seems to me like that's you know he, that, coming up at the doors. Well, it's also it's setting the seed for that narrative that he can once once we see the conservative costed platform. And to John's point earlier, there's only going to be a couple of options. Mm. You know, and, and one of the question, the first questions that Andrew Shearer you can expect to get, right? Okay, well, what are you going to cut? to balance the books, and, and then, then that reanimates the Doug Ford and the, conversation. And, and, you know, let's face it, Ontario is so important seat-wise. When the Conservatives are at 35% in Ontario, they're winning 35 seats out of the however many there are, 121. 121. When they're at 44, as they were in 2011 with Harper, they won 70-plus. Uh, you know, that's... That's the big swing in five percentage points. Yeah, it's, a, it's a big hill to climb. With the, uh, let's talk a little bit about, okay, so we're at the halfway point of the campaign. We're at the halfway point of the campaign. Um, what are your thoughts on what we've seen so far? And John, let me start with you. And, and you know, what do you think the campaign's been about? What do you think it'll be about for the final three weeks? Well, I mean, it is, it is a bit of a Seinfeld campaign. It's not really <laughs> been about anything. I mean, they've made little boutique. Uh, so I was with Shreer for two weeks. So I think I'll speak to that. Yeah. But... Uh, little boutique cuts here and there, which cumulatively they're hoping will say people will look at it and go, "Well, that's going to save me X dollars, and, and that's that's for me." Um, I think Shears run a pretty flawless campaign so far. If that's your goal, it's a pretty modest goal, to be honest. I mean, it's not uh, doesn't inspire people, but uh, but he's been um, cautious and he's not made any big mistakes, and he's relied on his opponent to make mistakes, and he's made a couple. So. We'll see in the debates how that goes. Susan? Yeah, I went door to door last week in Toronto 
And uh, the people knew that there was an election going on there, but everyone had a different issue at the door. Right. You know, they, um, nobody knows, as John says, what this election is about. I find myself writing, and I've got to stop it, because I keep writing what this election isn't about. You know, that, um, and, and uh, no, I'll, I'll just raise it. In my house, anyway, we're is equally riveted to what's going on in the United States. I find it odd that we're having an election proximate to what is, you know, Donald Trump and serious challenges to democracy around the world. He's had a huge effect on Canada. It has been the single biggest preoccupation of this government in the last four years, and we aren't having a conversation about Canada-U.S. relations. We're not talking about democracy. Well, that's, a, that's a fair point. It's a lot yeah. about what the campaign's not about. Yeah. Uh, Joel, any final the, thought to you? The, the national campaign has not been inspiring for voters, I would say. So that means that local campaigns, regional campaigns, yes. may have a bigger mm -hmm. impact this time than the national leaders in the choice of voters. And sure I think so. Uh, so you will see maybe candidates winning on their own instead of having the help usually they get from the inspiration they get from the leaders. All right. Well, we'll see what we get the next three weeks. Thank you all. Thank you. Well, we'll shift our focus now to ridings to watch in this country. We are on the ground in some 50 ridings across Canada. The ridings we think will help determine the outcome of the election on October 21st. We go to these ridings so Canadians in every part of the country can hear about the issues that will decide the vote in other parts of the country. The issues that set us apart and the issues that bring us together as well. It's important to know what we all want for the country. So for the next half hour, we'll profile the riding of St. Catharines, Ontario. It is one of our ridings to watch. That's my daughter, that's her mom, that's Leanne. He did the three-month program, was very successful. He was released and then he had arranged for transitional housing, which is a place where they go, um, where they can get supports like, you know, 24 hours seven. And so he went there and first phone call he made was to someone to bring him heroin and, and uh, fentanyl. And he used and that was it. Yeah, it was he was nice. fit. He was, when he was fit, and you know what's funny is he was always a fitness freak. Sandy Tentardini lost her 28-year-old son Scott to opioid overdose in 2016. She believes his obsessive compulsive disorder and attention deficit issues were partly to blame for his addiction. In his head, he was struggling. He was given a prescription for opioids from uh, the dentist for his wisdom teeth and went, Mm, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut these up and you know start snorting them and I truly believe that was the beginning of his real downward spiral spiral. So this so, was oxycontin. Yes, he said it was the first time his mind was ever quiet. Sandy's way of coping with her heartbreak 
was by helping others like her son. She was an advocate for St. Catherine's first and only safe injection site. So if anything happens, you know, they're well cared for, right? Folks come in and they do an intake every time. And we do have a wait area here. And then they proceed to get their supplies. So we have another harm reduction worker over here. There was a huge need in Niagara. We were consistently near the top of all the lists that you don't want to be near the top of. So we knew that it was something that we had to fight for in our community. Clients can safely use in relative privacy under the discreet supervision of two paramedics and a nurse. Talia Storm says the consumption and treatment site has literally saved dozens of lives. Yeah, so we have reversed um, 175 overdoses so far since December. Um, so I always look at those as second chances. But just having somewhere safe to use isn't enough. Talia Storm says the city needs more treatment facilities and mental health supports. She is hoping the opioid emergency in her community will spur federal election candidates to act. We are really good at connecting people to treatment and other services as well, so we do have a lot of community partners on site, including the Community Health Center, the Hep C team from Niagara Health. I think this is an overdose crisis at this point. The issue is that of safe supply. So what would you like to see? Safe supply. So that might be decriminalization of substances is another big one, um, and then access to pharmaceutical grade substances for people to use. I want to know what their plan is. I don't even think, aside from a stance, they really have a plan. I think we're seeing a lot more die because of the toxic supply, and the toxic supply is directly related to prohibition. Look at alcohol, right? When alcohol was prohibited, people were losing their lives, they were going blind, they were dying, limbs, you know, and then the government went, oh, we can't have this, and they acted. I mean, that was, what, the 20s? That was 100 years ago and they were smarter than we are now, you know? I was walking around downtown canvassing on, on my own yesterday and a couple different neighborhoods talking to three different families and all of them mentioned that there's been an uptick in, in break-ins downtown and it, this is clearly related to the opioid crisis and homelessness uh, in, in downtown St. Catharines. Green Party candidate Travis Mason is a lifelong resident who says he saw the opioid crisis escalate as soon as fentanyl made the scene. There are multiple elements of the platform that was released that would address these issues, including uh, guaranteed livable income, including increased access to mental health facilities and care, including affordable housing and you know better jobs. And if we address those issues and help our most vulnerable, then they won't be in such a desperate situation where they feel the need to, you know, um, commit crimes of opportunity in order to make ends meet or in order to, uh, to get high or in, order to, or in order to eat. Conservative candidate Christina Waller agrees St. Catharines needs help from the federal government. I get this question a lot at the doors, especially when I'm door knocking downtown. I think everybody's in agreement that every level of government needs to work together. So the municipal, regional, provincial, and federal all have to get on the same page. I, for one, want to be an advocate at the federal level to bring more money for infrastructure, for housing, to get people off the streets. The opioid crisis is also associated with a mental health crisis, yeah. and I think we need a nationwide plan to deal with that. But she says decriminalizing drugs isn't the answer. I personally believe that we need to focus more on rehabilitation. I don't think that we 
do a good enough job yet offering proper rehabilitation to people who really want it. We need more spots, we need more regulation around it. This is a problem that's been years in the making and we're seeing the consequences and we're seeing it firsthand in St. Catharines. The Niagara region is very high in the list in terms of overdoses. I've seen it firsthand, I've done ride-alongs with police, fire and ambulance and it's rampant. We've committed $230 million towards the opioid crisis, but it's bigger than that. We have to talk about all of the issues surrounding the opioid crisis, be it housing, um, be it addiction, mental health, poverty, and it's only through a comprehensive approach that we are going to address this problem that again has been years and decades in the making, and we're committed to doing that. It's slowly getting worse, but we are hearing, and there is some hope. We've seen that opportunity, the benefit of keeping people alive till they want to get help. And that's where we have to step in to be there as governments, both provincially, federally, municipally, to be there to help people when they need it. But despite its growing opiate problem, St. Catharines is still the garden city. It's surrounded by beautiful green spaces, lush vineyards and fruit trees. The beaches of Lake Ontario lie to the south and the Welland Canal traces its western border. I love it here. I've been here uh, 32 years. I would never live anywhere else. It's a beautiful and wonderful place to live. It's very unique in terms of wine country, in terms of Niagara Falls, Lake Ontario, the Niagara River. I mean, there's all these natural advantages that we have here. I think for me, this is a city that is just brimming with potential and has been for a long time. And the excitement for me is to see it and be a part of it, reaching that potential. And I think we're getting there and I think we're working together. But as a city councillor, putting that hat on, you know, a lot of these issues, we need more help from our provincial and federal partners. Now, we think we're doing a pretty good job of making St. Catharines an attractive place to do business. It's obviously a wonderful place to live in terms of the park spaces, in terms of proximity to water and things like that. So I think we're getting there in terms of converting it to a place where people are going to come from outside the city to set up their business here. This city's roots go back to 1798, when it was a prosperous mill town but the past few years haven't been kind to St. Catharines. Generally speaking, you saw wages in St. Catharines stay pretty stagnant, where at one point, you know, across the board they were going up, then people had money and were spending money locally, and you saw that sort of go away, and you, you lost those good jobs, like three or four, five thousand good jobs just went away, and it's hard to replace those these days. It's hard to find those jobs that pay good wages, have good benefits, and you know where you're gonna be employed there, for 25 years. Really around the time NAFTA came in, uh, manufacturing really moved away from a lot of Canada and a lot of uh, southern Ontario to places like Mexico. So we lost a lot of those jobs and we're still trying to transition to a new type of economy which might be more service-based or might be more technology-based. 800 General Motors workers were temporarily laid off after GM strikes in the U.S. NDP candidate Dennis Van Meer works as a union executive in Hamilton. He's the vice president of United Steel Workers 1005. Myself, I was a General Motors worker in the late 80s to, from 87 to 96 I was a GM worker. and I lost my job there to the first free trade agreement. So the loss of manufacturing jobs has been replaced uh, by a lot of precarious work. Back in the day, there used to be 4,000 workers there. So this always being a diner uh, has always thrived with, of course, uh, GM employees, no doubt about it. Lorenzo Lucchetta just took ownership of this diner right across the street from General Motors. It's been around for decades. 
and has fed generations of GM workers. We're not GM's cafeteria. We serve everybody else and GM too. My business is just going to start feeling it now because it just started more or less. Once the truck stopped rolling, uh, the engine's not coming out of the plant anymore and uh, until uh, their uh, U.S. counterparts uh, decide to get off strike. And economic uncertainty isn't just affecting older workers in the manufacturing sector. These Brock University students fear an uncertain future. Hi, I'm Noor. I'm 21. This will be my second time voting federally. Hi, I'm Rebecca and this will be my second time voting and I'm 24. This is Sai and uh, I'm 19 years old and I'll be voting for the first time. Hi, I'm Kayleen. I am 21 years old and this will be my second time voting federally. These students say federal politicians seem tone deaf to issues of affordability for young people. I'm really worried about how high prices are. Um, cost of living is really expensive, internet is going through the roof, phone bills are through the roof. I pay like $350 on my internet and phone bills a month, which is ridiculous. I think it's really important as students to be able to find affordable housing, uh, and that is not necessarily something that's easy. A lot of times students are making sacrifices, whether they're sacrificing on purchasing groceries uh, over their school year or having a house that's safe and affordable. Going off of that, I think telecom needs a big reshaping. What's been happening is with only three competitors, three major ones, We've been seeing a lot of steady rises in prices and also um, a decrease in the quality of service. In Niagara, where we live, poverty and homelessness is a huge issue. I know even at Brock, an issue that's happening in at universities across Canada is students in universities are experiencing food scarcity. So um, a few years ago, our students' union actually developed a food bank here that's only for Brock students because that's how hard it is to get. Um, good quality produce, especially in downtown St. Catharines as well. Uh, it's what we call a food desert. There's a lack of uh, accessible and affordable healthy food options. It's crazy that uh, we live in a really high agricultural area. Mm -hmm. Like we grow a lot of food in the Niagara region and that food either is sold for such high prices that students can never afford them or if they do get sold, they get sold across the border for yeah. way less than they would get sold here. And we're really worried about once we get out of school, not having you know a stable job that actually pays the bill because the bills are so high. And it's an issue for people who have uh, university degrees yes. and then that go on to do like three part-time jobs. One solution we could possibly look at is encouraging entrepreneurship, especially with youth at an early age, early age. and that way we can get more competition into most of the uh, industries mm -hmm. and also provide more jobs and possibly even uh, make, it, make things affordable for not just youth but for everyone in Canada. I think we also need to see a lot more social innovation in Canada and funding for that social innovation to address a lot of these issues that we're talking about like poverty, like socioeconomic inequality, you know, like lack of jobs for women. Think, things like a balanced budget are important for the government and um, because that's something that the youth will end up paying for as we get older. Like, that's something that falls to us. Assuming we make enough money to pay taxes. Wow. <laughs> okay, if, 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 if all youth don't make enough money to pay taxes, we're way worse off than <laughs> even I thought. <laughs> we were talking to some young people at Brock University, and they're really scared about graduating and not finding any permanent kind of work. What can you offer for them, for young people who are in university or just trying to start their lives? We've heard about that, obviously a lot of Brock students in the area. Um, and we're be my four years, we've been focused on working with the city of St. Catharines, figuring out what the priorities are for our region and developing them, finding, finding the resources they need to build on, uh, build on projects. 
We've had incredible announcements at Brock and Niagara College, and one Ryerson University is going to develop a hub in Niagara Falls as well. And so we've seen this, which will seen these three hubs at Brock, Niagara College, and Ryerson that will take small businesses, help grow them, help to develop the products uh, that we need and create new jobs and help build those small and medium-sized enterprises in the Niagara region and move forward. Liberal incumbent Chris Biddle won the riding by 3,200 votes in 2015. He says it's important to give the average taxpayer a break, and he agrees with the young people that phone bills are a good place to start. How are you going to cut those phone bills? Well, they will face the consequence of competition. That is open to the federal government. Uh, cell phones and their frequencies are protected. It's likely that Bell, Rogers and TELUS won't want to see foreign entities in our country. Uh, and that being said, I think they will be more than willing to enter into discussions with uh, with the federal government to reduce those prices rather than facing uh, competition from larger foreign companies. The Conservative candidate believes her party can help all constituents by putting more money in their wallets. St. Catharines is proudly a GM town and obviously we've had a lot of GM job losses and um, we're trying to reinvigorate uh, St. Catharines and I think that starts with a thriving economy and it starts with people being able to participate in the economy, which goes all the way back to having more money in your pocket, more money to spend, and having a more affordable lifestyle. So the Conservative government wants to help people, like the average middle class family in St. Catharines, keep more money in their pocket by scrapping the carbon tax, by offering a universal tax credit, and many other incentives that are so crucial to the people of St. Catharines. Hello, how are you? Hi, my name is Dennis Van Meer. I'm the NDP candidate running in St. Catharines. Dennis Van Meer says the best way to let voters get ahead is by alleviating dental and drug costs. There's millions of people across Canada, but there's thousands of people in St. Catharines who don't have dental care. And I think uh, a national dental care program is long overdue. Have you thought about the upcoming election at all? It's actually preventative. It would probably, overall, it would help our health care system immensely. There, I don't know, there's thousands of cases of people that go to the emergency every year with dental care issues at a, at a hospital. So if you have an emergency dental, it's actually covered under OHIP if you go to the hospital. But if you go to a dentist, it isn't. So I think it's very important for people to maintain uh, good oral health. To detractors who say such plans are pie-in-the-sky expenditures that Canadians simply cannot afford, the NDP candidate says this. How come no one ever asked? In Mr. Trudeau, where did you get $5 billion to buy a pipeline? Where did you get $5 billion to subsidize oil companies? Like, no one, how come people don't ask those questions? Like, that's $10 billion of our taxpayers' money that went to oil companies and to buy an antiquated pipeline. So I think we, if we make the right choices, we can actually have affordability and we can actually probably do a property if, if people will give us a chance. Dennis Van Meer also says the government has to help with offering housing to his community. When you talk about the affordable housing, everyone just thinks about buying homes. Everyone forgets about renting homes, renting apartments. One in three Canadians actually rent. And in St. Catharines alone, we have a huge uh, lack of uh, affordable renting units. We haven't built social housing. Pro I think we just built our first social housing unit in St. Catharines. It just opened, I think, six months ago. It was the first one since the 1970s that just opened. So co-op housing, social housing, uh, affordability for apartments, and of course buying homes is very important too. So again, the NDP's platform is 
you know, changing the CMHC to a 30-year mortgage as opposed to a 25-year mortgage. Councillor Greg Miller maintains that getting St. Catharines back on track involves attracting more businesses. Now we think we're doing a pretty good job of making St. Catharines an attractive place to do business. It's obviously a wonderful place to live in terms of the park spaces, in terms of proximity to water and things like that. So I think we're getting there in terms of converting it to a place where people are going to come from outside the city to set up their business here. We have companies like Steelcon that actually moved down from Brampton because real estate was so expensive in Brampton. Um, instead of building a new plant out there, they came here to look for empty factories and they're coming to take over um, a full factory here, which is awesome. We have our dry docks in Port Weller being reinvigorated. A company called Heddle Marine has taken them over. And yeah, so we're bringing those, some manufacturing jobs back here as well. And, you know, it's important for us to work with these groups. I went to the uh, Niagara Industrial Association business uh, meeting the other week, and we have so many great companies all around that um, are excited, and a lot of them are excited about co-op programming and bringing in high school students and working with the community to uh, make sure that everybody understands the opportunities available in this city now. Fortune cookies. Fortune cookies. This is as much paper as the Green Party gives out. <laughs> You're not getting a flyer from us. <laughs> the Green Party candidate knows what it's like to get by on a shoestring. He's running his campaign on one. Paper. Yeah, not a lot of paper. Yeah, that's um, the biggest one. No, we don't have an office, which some people aren't happy about, and, and I apologize, but given the time frame uh, and given, uh, given our budgets, or lack thereof, really, um, we, just, we can't afford it. As far as the Green Party goes, voters here are getting two candidates for the price of one. We're running our campaign for the most part with a, 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 a gaggle of uh, dedicated volunteers. Travis Mason's fiance is his campaign manager and vocal sidekick. Um, but the house before that, it was this elderly gentleman and he said, I love the Greens and I, if I thought you had a shot, I would vote for you, but I don't think you do. And I think that's where they're wrong because I think people really are paying attention now. You know, the, I mean, even just the weather out east just this past month, it, it's People are scared for a lot of reasons and it's getting a lot easier to put climate change at the, at the forefront. And the number one thing I say when I'm canvassing and talking with people um, is, what's your issue? Because it doesn't really matter what your issue is because if we don't have a planet for our future generations to grow food on, have clean water to drink from, uh, energy that's not going to run out on us. Like nothing else is going to matter. Nothing else is going to matter. Good job, buddy. With their enthusiastic son and volunteer Cole, let's go. let's go. Lead the way. They make an approachable trio that voters seem to connect with. Have you thought about the Greens this year? Have you been looking into your vote? Honestly, I never vote. <laughs> you never vote. No, no, I've heard that before. Um, so I'm going to leave you with that. That's our fortune cookie of information. I even heard online there's like some petition going around that people were signing saying that they will not have kids because it's not ethical. That's Which extreme, is, isn't it? It's kind isn't of like a huge extreme? thing like in mm -hmm. our like cohort right now. I'm Travis, by the way. Okay, I'm Olivia. Olivia, nice good to meet you. you. Thanks for stopping, stopping the chat. Yeah. Travis and Shannon know they have a tough road ahead of them. St. Catharines was staunchly conservative for years until the red wave in 2015. And Andrew Shear's party 
wants to get this golden horseshoe riding back into the blue fold. We have such an awesome team of candidates running this year. I'm one of 105 women that are running for the Conservative Party this year. He campaigned with candidate Christina Waller at a local watering hole to lend support. This is actually not the first time I've been at the cat's caboose. And help boost her image. I continuously hear from people that life's getting more expensive and they're so glad that a fresh young woman is running for the Conservative Party and that they have somebody, you know, that's leading us into a more affordable lifestyle. I actually grew up working in this bar and earned the value of a dollar here and so I'm so happy to be here tonight. I know that the average person that I talk to at the doors would like more opportunity here. And not just a job, they want an opportunity to grow their career. They want the opportunity to live here and thrive and be able to raise a family on a good income. But more than affordability or any other issue, candidates say what they hear at the door is that this election is about trust. How important is trust uh, in this election campaign for you? For me, it's everything. I trust Andrew. Um, he has been a friend uh, over the years. I trust him as somebody who's compassionate and caring and a family guy. And what about trust for other candidates? Uh, are you hearing anything like that at the door? Yeah, I mean, trust is a big issue this election. Who do you trust more to put more money in your pocket? Who do you trust more on the international stage? Absolutely. Since 1867, Canada has been led by one of two parties, right? And it's kind of scary to think of another party coming in and starting things afresh because that's what the Green Party is proposing to do. Uh, they're worried about not knowing whether to trust the Green Party because they haven't held the balance of power ever and that's kind of scary. We've worked hard for the residents of St. Catharines. Um, we've, we've fulfilled our major commitments, for example, in the Canada Child Benefit, cutting taxes on the middle class, raising them on the wealthiest 1%. There's been a major difference um, to people in their pocketbooks, in their lives over the last four years. We've seen major projects being announced in Niagara. Uh, I've worked hard for the, the residents. They can trust me, and we're hearing that, um, and I'm going to continue to do that over the next four years. Trust, transparency, integrity, you know, those three issues alone. I can't believe in today's day and age that you've got to run for political office and you've got to campaign on transparency, accountability, integrity. It should be a given. Uh, and unfortunately, it isn't a given, and it should be a given. For CPAC Writings to Watch, I'm Laura DiBattista.